Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Tanner. Well, good morning for those of you that, uh, that I have not yet met. My name is Steve, Steve Curry, and I am one of the pastors at uh, Frontline Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. So good to uh, be with you guys again. You need to know what an encouragement this church, what an encouragement that you are to us in Oklahoma, to see the way that you care for one another, um, the way that you reach out and care for your neighbors in this community. Um, it, it really is an encouragement to us. It builds us up. I feel like I'm always welcomed uh, when I come here. And so I'm just really looking forward to what the Lord has for us this morning as we, as we look into his word. So let's pray, ask for his help, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Father, it's such a privilege uh, for us to be able to come before you together this morning to look into your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts, Lord, that you would open our minds so, so that we can really receive what you have for each of us this morning. Lord, help me uh, to speak with clarity and help us all to be changed more and more into your likeness. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, I first heard the good news about Jesus, and I responded to that, and he apprehended me when I was 17 years old. So shortly after that, I started reading the Bible, and as I did that, I found that there were these amazing promises that he had made to us. They, uh, they were just almost unbelievable. Things like, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Uh, things like, I go and prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. And I came that you might have life and might have that abundantly. So these, these amazing promises and many more like them just seemed almost too good to be true. So for a couple of years, I just basked in that and I just reveled in the fact that for whatever reason that I couldn't understand, Jesus, the architect of everything, loved me. I, I just didn't get that. Um, I studied the Bible for hours on end because I wanted to know what he was like. What was he like? What were the things that he liked, the things that he didn't like? What did he want to do with me that I could find in the Bible? Um, what do I do with all these amazing promises that he made? How do I relate to those promises? Well, then one day as I was reading in Hebrews chapter 10, I came across the verses that, that we just read together. And um, verse 36 really popped out at me. It says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Well, I definitely wanted to receive all that he had promised. And best that I knew how to, I was trying to do his will. But I, I wasn't sure what he meant by, you have need of endurance. Um, I wasn't really sure about that. So I asked him, for a gift of endurance. 
I mean, he had given me all these other amazing gifts, like the faith to believe him in the first place. Uh, He had given me the gift of the forgiveness of all my sins. Uh, He had even put his Holy Spirit inside of me. So he'd given me all these amazing gifts. Why not a gift of endurance too? The trouble is the Bible doesn't talk about a gift of endurance. And so as I went on year after year, I began to see that endurance is not a gift. Endurance is not given. Endurance is, um, it's grown, okay? So the only way to get endurance is to be put into a difficult situation and then to stay there. And after you've been there for a while, you stay there longer. And after that, you stay there some more. Longer than you think that you can hold out. Now, every athlete who has ever trained for a a marathon and every soldier who has ever trained for a a difficult mission understands um, this drill. It's the church that hasn't understood it very well. So the writer of Hebrews tells us, you have need of endurance. I read a book a couple of years ago that really helped me on this, this concept of endurance. Uh, the book was Fortitude by Dan Crenshaw. Now, some of you will recognize his name, but probably more of you will recognize his face uh, <clears throat> as that of a U.S. congressman from South Texas, the only one in Congress who's wearing a patch over his right eye. Uh, he, um, he lost that eye to a a Taliban IED in Afghanistan. He still carries quite a bit of shrapnel in his body. Uh, Dan Crenshaw is a retired Navy SEAL Lieutenant Commander who did five tours of duty all over the world. And he spends several pages in his book describing SEAL training. So if a SEAL doesn't learn anything else, he learns endurance. Their training, which is known as BUDS, for basic underwater demolition slash seal is a physically, mentally, and emotionally grueling time of activities designed to push each of these candidates to the very limit of their mental and emotional capabilities. See, what they thought they could do, it pushes them beyond that. Now, much of that training happens on Coronado Beach, California, uh, where one of their activities is running. But it's not just running. Periodically, the, uh, the instructors will command all the men to go out into the frigid water, then come back up on the beach, roll around for a while, and then continue running. That way, they've got thousands of particles of sand that are chafing against them the entire time that they're running. Uh, Crenshaw says that seals are the most thoroughly abraded and exfoliated people on the face of the planet. Okay. Another phase of their training is known as log PT. Crenshaw writes, log PT, short for physical training, is simple. It means you and your boat crew, about six guys grouped together based on height, carry a log, kind of like a shortened telephone pole, a heavy one, and carry it a lot. There are varieties of exercises that the instructors offer up that are generally terrible. Endless lunges while cradling the log up log, which means holding it above your head until your arms give out. But mostly log PT means racing other boat crews up sand berms for hours. Losers keep racing and winners get to sit out around. It always pays to be a winner. 
I still have scars on my inner forearms from cradling the 300-pound-plus log while wet and sandy. So a visitor from another country might think that the grueling scene that they see played out on Coronado Beach is actually torture, or maybe it's the punishment of, of prisoners. The drill instructors screaming at all the recruits certainly looks like uh, the commandant of a concentration camp uh, yelling at the prisoners. But what they're actually witnessing is deep, deep character formation in men who make up what may be the finest fighting force that the world has ever seen. Okay, so I, I see why this might be important training for a Navy SEAL, but I'm not a SEAL and I don't intend to be one. So what's the point that I'm making? Well, the point is this, far more than the physical training that these guys are getting, they're being tested nearly to destruction in their minds and their emotions. Character flaws that are buried deep, deep inside of them begin to sweat to the surface in all of that endurance training. Um, weaknesses that they might not even have known that they had begin to show themselves. So they're learning endurance. And it isn't just a Navy SEAL thing, it's a human thing. Listen to uh, King David in the 139th Psalm. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. And then down in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So David starts off, starts off that psalm saying, Lord, search me, look me over. But then, beginning down in verse 23, he asks God to search him again. See, before it was God doing the searching on his own initiative. Now, in verse 23, David is asking for it. David invites God to try me. Now, we need to understand what he's saying. He's not saying, so try me. <laughs> that, that's not what he's saying there. What he's saying is, the, okay, so the word try, the word try is alternately translated several places in the Old Testament as refine. Okay, so David is saying, Lord, refine me. Psalm 66.10 says this, For you, O God, have tested us, you have tried us or refined us as silver is tried. So how is silver tried? How is silver refined? Psalm 12 tells us how. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So I grew up in Nevada, which is the silver state. I know a little bit about trying, refining, purifying silver. And the process goes something like this. Once the ore has been dug out of the ground, the rocks are crushed up really, really fine. Then they're put into a crucible and heated blazing hot. And as the silver melts, the, the heavier impurities drop to the bottom of the crucible and the light impurities rise to the top. The lighter impurities are skimmed off and then very carefully the molten silver is poured into a mold and allowed to cool. Once it's cool, 
the process begins all over again. More fire, uh, more impurities drop to the bottom, more impurities rise to the top, it's poured off and it's cooled. And after that, it happens again and again and again. Um, each time, the metal becomes more and more refined so that by the end of this process, they're able to stamp on that bar of silver 99.99% pure. So listen again to what David was asking for in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, refine me, and know my anxious thoughts. Look me over, Father. Search me. Then turn up the heat on me, which creates what? Anxious thoughts. And see what sinks to the bottom and what rises to the top. You can open your Bible pretty much anywhere and see this same scenario played out over and over with God loving his children this way. Moses tried to deliver the children of Israel in his own strength. So God sent him to the wilderness for 40 years for refining. At the end of that time, God brought him back to Israel or brought him back to Egypt. He, and he delivered the people of Israel in God's strength and not his own. Joseph saw a vision of the way that God wanted to use him in the future. And he proudly and unwisely shared that with his brothers who were already jealous of him. His brothers took him, sold him into slavery in Egypt. And Joseph spent the next 13 years, first as a slave and then as a uh, prisoner in a stinking Egyptian prison. Okay? But when it came time for God to bring him through that period of endurance, it took one day, one 24-hour period for Joseph to go from that rotting prison cell to being the number two man in the entire nation of, um, of Egypt. Now, we could go through and, and look in the Bible any number of places. We could look at King David or the Apostle Paul or uh, John, the beloved disciple. We could look at any of them, and what we would see is a very similar story. They learned endurance, and their character was purified in the furnace of suffering. In his letter, James singles out one particular person as an example to us of endurance. In chapter 5, he writes, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So I'd like to spend just a few minutes this morning talking about the story of Job. Now, I can't preach through that in detail. We don't have time for that. But I'd like to take a 35,000-foot look at, um, at the conclusion that James draws from the story of Job, that the Lord, through the process of deep refining, is full of compassion and is merciful. Job is generally accepted as the oldest book in the Bible, which is interesting. Before God wanted us to know about the creation of the earth in Genesis, or before he gave us all the comfort that comes from the Psalms, or before he gave us all the instruction that comes from the Proverbs, he wanted us to know about how important it was to learn endurance. 
and so he gave us Job. Book of Job begins by saying, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So verse 1 there doesn't mean that Job was sinless, but what it means is that Job's heart was pointed towards the Lord, and it was intent on pleasing God. And we learn that Job was wealthy, and he had a large family. Then in verse 6, we get a glimpse into what was happening in uh, kind of behind the scenes in the heavenly realm. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth, a blameless man, an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hand and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So let's stop here and look at what just happened. Who brought up the subject of Job? Was it Satan? No, it was God. It was God picking this fight. If God had been wearing a gauntlet, he just took it off, swatted Satan in the face with it, threw it down, and said, have you had a good look at my servant Job? And Satan says, yeah, I've looked at him, but there's no way I can even get close to him. You've got him hemmed in. You're protecting him way too closely. There's nothing I can do. And so God said, okay, everything that he has is in your power, but, but don't touch him personally. So God lifts his protection on everything that Job has. Picking up in verse 13, now there was a day when, the sons and da- when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, if you're a parent in here today, 
your heart is hurting for this guy. See, he, all his children were just killed. Forget his possessions. He lost his kids. But he really was a man um, that God could say he was blameless and upright. He says he worships, and then he says God is one who gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So then in chapter 2, we see in heaven that same scene repeated again that we saw uh, in chapter 1. Again, God points Job out to Satan and underscores that with even all his loss, Job is still continuing to worship God. Satan then says that if Job's health is attacked, that'll push Job over the edge and he'll curse God. Picking up in verse 6, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. It was at this point that Job's wife gives him her, her famous counsel. Why don't you just curse God and die? So it's, it's always good to have a life partner that will give you that important encouragement um, just when you need it. But seriously, um, if we take a look at what God was doing with Job, we see that Job has been singled out of the crowd. His children were all dead, and his wife had abandoned her faith. Let me push pause here for a second and say that we're big believers in Christian community. We believe that God has called all of us to walk together. He's put us in a family along with a lot of other of his kids, and we're designed to walk out that life together. But there are times when God singles us out, and it, it just comes down to Job and his God. His kids were gone, and his wife had abandoned her faith. Job had been singled out, and that refining process was just between the two of them. At the end of chapter 2, Job has three friends who come on the scene. Beginning in verse 11, Now when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with them on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Sometimes I think that Job's friends get kind of a bad rap. Um, if you have three friends who will travel a distance, come to you, sit there with you, and mourn with you for a week without saying anything, you've got three friends. You really do. Um, but the problem happened when they opened their mouths. As long as their mouths were closed, it was great. Then they opened their mouths and they tried to fix Job. And when they did that, they got in trouble with God. Chapter 3, Job begins to lament the day of his birth. He says he wishes that he'd never been born, or maybe better yet, that he had been stillborn. But then in verse 25, Job says something that I think is key to understanding the entire book of Job. Job says, The thing I feared the most has come upon me, and that which I dreaded 
has come to pass. So what was it that Job feared the most and what was it that he had been dreading? The loss of his stuff? Even the loss of his family? I don't think so because he didn't say those he didn't say that back in chapters 1 and 2 when uh, when those disasters happened. But as the days wore on and he just sat there scraping his open sores, a fear that had been buried deep deep in Job began to surface. What if God really isn't good? See? What if he's against me and he's not for me? Um, what if what all the pagans say about him is true, that he really doesn't care about any of this stuff? And so for the next 29 chapters, Job mourns, he laments, he argues his case to his three friends. The, the three friends take tag-team turns with accusing Job of sinning against God, of a lack of faith, a lack of trust, and a host of other lacks. Chapter by chapter, the friends get more insistent, and verse by verse, Job gets more raw. And slowly, Job's fears about God's character begin to sweat to the surface, and Job begins to justify himself at God's expense. Job's message becomes basically, I have lived uprightly, and God is dealing with me unfairly. Job's one of those books that it's really easy to get lost out in the weeds reading it. You almost have to go to the back of the book and read the last chapter in order for the rest of the book to make any sense. And when you take a peek in the back of the book, we, we see Job learning, um, seeing himself clearly in the light of God's goodness the light of God's presence, and walking in a whole new level of trust with the Lord. We hear Job essentially saying, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. I put my hand over my mouth, and I retract everything that I said. However, before we get to that place, Job experiences depths of physical, emotional, and relational suffering that is really difficult for us to even process. You know, the longer that I live, the more I question the wisdom of us comparing one person's suffering to another person's. It's just not helpful for me to compare what I'm going through with what my neighbor's going through and then saying, well, on a scale of one to 10, who has the greater suffering? I think really in the end, suffering is suffering. Um, godly suffering can be external and visible to everybody like Job, Job's was or sometimes it's internal and emotional and it's not visible to, any, to anyone at all. Either way, God promises us that the suffering that we're going through is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison to that suffering. I woke up on the morning of July the 7th, 1997, to find two Oklahoma Highway Patrol officers standing on my doorstep telling me that earlier that morning, my 24-year-old son Josh had been killed in a one-car accident. Um, Josh left behind um, a wife, 
a two-year-old son and a 10-month-old daughter, to say that our lives were upended and devastated would be like the understatement of the decade. But a few days after his funeral, when the adrenaline had started wearing off of me and, and constant pain um, was my companion, I began to ask questions of God. And the first question that I asked him, I'll just be honest with you, the first question that I asked him was, God, did you just kill my son? And uh, I thought about that for a while. And I came to the conclusion that no, God hadn't killed my son. But see, Sandy and I had been praying for our children since before they were born. We were praying that, that God would draw them to himself, that they would come to know Jesus, and that, that God would physically protect my children. So my second question became, God, did there come a day when, as I'm over here praying for the safety of my children, you said, I'm not going to answer that prayer the way you want me to today. And I came to the conclusion that, yeah, that's what happened. God said, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to take your son. And um, the third question came right on the heels of that one, which was why. And I asked it over and over and over again. Why, 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 why? Job asked why too. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me or why the breasts that I should nurse? Why was I not as a stillborn child? Why is light given to him who is in misery? Why is life, get, life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Why did you, not bring, or why did you bring me out of the womb? Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? Why should I not be impatient? Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? See, why, 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 why? I can't tell you how many times I asked why. Hours turned into days. Days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. And I still didn't know why. I became angry that God wasn't answering me and that his ways are so different than my ways. I remember a day that I was working on a car, or actually I was supposed to be working on a car. I had jacked it up, I was underneath it, um, but I was just lying there with hot, angry tears running off my face. And while I was laying there, I remember saying to God, God, if these are your ways, I hate your ways. I hate your ways. I fully expected the car to fall on me and I didn't care if it did because if God was unfaithful, what was the point in going on? But instead of the car falling on me, what happened was the peace of God swept over me like a wave. And though I didn't hear God speak to me audibly, he might as well have, 
because deep inside me, I heard God say, now you know. I've always known. I've always known that you hated my ways. But you didn't know until now. And now you know too. I still didn't have all my questions answered. I really didn't. But slowly, almost imperceptibly, I came to a place of realizing that I didn't need to know why in order to go on living. It became enough for now to know that he knows why. It was like I took all my questions and I put them in a box and I put them high up on a shelf. Now I know they're there and he knows they're there. And I've asked him if in his time he will get that box down and we can talk about it. I really believe that he'll do that. And I'm also fully aware that it may not be on this side of eternity. We don't always get to find out why. We do get to put our hand in the hand of the one who does know why. Staying in the process, not slipping out the side, not cursing God and dying the way that Job's wife suggested. See, that produces endurance in us. And as the writer of Hebrews said, we have need of endurance. Endurance is what it will take, and it takes us through the time of suffering, the time of refining to that place where we receive all that's been promised. Hebrews chapter 11, which is actually the next chapter, is that chapter that lists all the heroes of our faith, tells about all that they were able to accomplish by faith, picking up in verse 32, and what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. And see, we read that and we go, woohoo, we're going to see some, some prayer answered here. And we will. But this chapter about the heroes of our faith ends this way. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all that was done in faith. All of it was done in faith. So chapter 11 ends talking about faith with endurance, which then immediately transitions into chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us what? Run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Folks, we are called to run with endurance. So how does this play out for us July the 10th, 2022, here in Collins, Iowa? Well, let me quickly give you three things. Number one, endurance training has nothing to do with punishment. Jesus took all the punishment for our sins, past, present, and future, on the cross. There's nothing left to pay for. The church has a pretty good theology of suffering for Jesus' sake. So when we see the disciples uh, in the book of Acts preaching the gospel and then being dragged in and beat up for preaching the gospel, we say, oh yeah, I, I understand that. They were, they were suffering for Jesus' sake. And we're, we're okay with the fact that if I go out there this afternoon and do 120 miles an hour on Highway 65 and I get arrested, that that is something that the Apostle Peter calls suffering as an evildoer, okay? So we understand pretty well suffering for Jesus' sake and suffering as an evildoer. But as a whole, we haven't known what to do with suffering that is endurance training. Listen to Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So suffering hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with punishment and everything to do with character formation. It's Navy SEAL training for all of us, okay? Number two, we do not get to direct our own brain surgery. So all of us have blind spots. They call them blind spots because we don't see them. But God does. And when it comes time for him to refine those things out of us, we won't be the people directing that process. This is not a haircut where I say, well, I'd like a little off here and a little off here, but leave this part alone. See, that, that's not what we're doing here. It's, it's the Father who is doing this refining. Apostle Peter wrote, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Our faithful creator, our loving father, is the one who will be doing this surgery. Number three, it's foolishness to believe that I can direct anybody else's brain surgery. Remember Job's three friends? They really wanted the best for Job. But in Job chapter 42, God speaks to them, and it wasn't pretty. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Coming back to Navy SEAL training, we would never ridicule or mock Navy SEALs that we saw running past us on Coronado Beach, carrying that log above their heads. Their suffering and the endurance that they are learning would humble us and it would silence us. Pastor once said that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. Okay? 
See, it's way too easy for us to see our brothers in Christ, our sisters in Christ, struggling as they run to carry the log that God has assigned to them. And it's easy for us to forget that that's endurance training. Job's friends tried shooting the wounded, and they got severely reprimanded for it. Just as the book of Job only makes sense by reading the back of the book and interpreting everything that had happened, a whole lot of what we're going through is only going to make sense from the other side of eternity. We're not going to understand it in the moment. We're not going to understand why was this endurance training necessary, but it will make sense at some point. It's a trap for us to try to draw too many conclusions from the limited perspective that we have of our own lives and of the the lives of those that we love. Jesus, the one full of grace and full of mercy, said this to his disciples, you will be judged by the same measure that you judge others. So let's give one another overly abundant grace as we all seek out to run this race of endurance that is set before us. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're so grateful that you haven't left us alone. Lord, we're so grateful that, that even in the hard things, Lord, that, that we don't understand that you're right there with us orchestrating that, Lord. You're there comforting us. Lord, you're there arranging circumstances. You're there doing everything that we need as you refine us, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged um, and, and Lord, not to take the Job's wife path out. Help us, Father, to trust in your goodness. Help us to put our hand in your hand, knowing that, that a lot of this we don't understand. A lot of this we don't know why but we do know you who does know why. So, Father, we just want to commit ourselves to you today. We want to ask you, Lord, to continue to work in our lives, continue, just like David prayed, Lord, Lord, search us, know our hearts, refine us, Lord. See if there's any hurtful thing in us, Lord. Bring us into life everlasting. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to move now into a time of celebrating the the table of the Lord, taking communion together. And, um, you know, this, the table of the Lord is symbolic. It is symbolic of what Jesus did when he went to the cross. His his body was broken, his, his blood was shed. But this table that he gave us is more than just a symbol. It's actually a time when we can experience fresh grace from the Lord. It's one of those times where we can interact with Him and and have a conversation with Him. We can pledge ourselves again to the process that He has us all in. So um, what we're going to do this morning is, if you're a believer in Jesus, um, feel free to come to this table. You're welcome at this table. Don't have to be a member of the church. Just have to be a member of the church. 
So if you're, if you're a member of the church, you're welcome at this table. If you're not a believer, if you're not sure what you believe in Jesus today, what I'd ask you to do is skip this table. This table makes absolutely no sense apart from faith. This is a table of faith. It's a meal of faith. So don't, don't come to a symbol. Come to Jesus himself. And there'll be gobs of people here that would, would love to talk to you and, and share life with you if you have questions about any of this. So what we'll do is we'll come up here, um, get the elements, get the juice or the wine, obey your conscience in that, um, take the bread, uh, go back to your seat, and then we'll all celebrate that together.